Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. If someone asked you about your longest day, what would you say? The Longest Day is a concise crisis podcast hosted by Broadstairs Consulting. Joined founder, CEO, Leah Brown, FRSA, don't you know, as she unearths valuable leadership insights from fantastic guests that will help you prepare for your own longest day. Season one of The Longest Day is available now. Tune in from the 11th of September for season two. Welcome to Mid-Atlantic. Today, I have a rather great guest. His name is Max Sklar. He's the creator of the local Maximum podcast. Max explores tech, maths and political philosophy on his show with leading experts. During his time at Foursquare, Matt played a key role in developing the City Guide rating system, combining attributes from 120 million global points of interest with data from 500 million devices. Max is a constant learner. Currently, he's working on NewMap.ai, an open-source data-driven system, which is revolutionizing how engineers and scientists build data stores and AI. His dedication to pushing the boundaries of technology is evident in that project. Now, on today's episode, we're going to look into future disruption caused by AI, and we're going to explore the critical ethical and regulatory considerations it raises for governments worldwide and other concerns as well of course from mitigating bias in algorithms to strengthening privacy protections governments are at the forefront in shaping or at least should be at the forefront in shaping responsible use of ai now artificial intelligence or ai does it inspire you confuse you Scare you maybe, uh, perhaps all of the above. Well, a group of MPs wants the government to do more to look at both the benefits and the threats of the technology. Yeah, they say addressing the issues with AI would improve public confidence and stop people getting spooked. 
There's comedy use of AI, like this fake rap from a fake Donald Trump. There's practical use, like cameras to detect which drivers are on their phones. And there's AI recently winning a drone flying race by judging the route better than humans. With so much to consider, a new parliamentary report calls on the government to address the risks and reassure the public. The report lists 12 challenges, including employment, because AI can and will replace some jobs, privacy, the use of facial recognition and our personal data, and existential threat, how public well-being and national security must be protected. This is a, a technology that's developing explosively, and so it's inevitable that some things that AI can do currently is not regulated. But what our call is uh, today to the government is to speed up its legislative response uh, to make sure that it doesn't, it's not outpaced by the technology. What's up, Internet? Clearly, the mission we have to make possible is finding a way to live with and regulate AI. Matt, welcome. How are you? Thank you. That was a great introduction. I'm like, wow, who's that guy? So I, I appreciate it. I'm doing good today. I'm supposing, Max, that first off, you are an all guns blazing utopian when it comes to the future of AI. On a scale of one to 100, how right am I with that presumption? Hmm. That's an interesting phrase, all guns blazing utopian. I am very optimistic about the possibilities of the technology. I'm not an AI pessimist. I am not. I think there are pitfalls, though. I think there are things that we should watch out for. So I wouldn't say I'm up to 100, but let's say a healthy optimism. Let's go with like uh, 70. For the sake of putting together a great podcast conversation, Let's dispense with the 17. Let's go straight to the 30. What are the key concerns that you have with an AI future? I think that it is the same problems that I've witnessed over the last 20 years, or we've all witnessed over the last 20 years, which was the promise of the internet and the promise of, of social media, and then the reality that we actually got. We were promised open information, and okay, we largely got that. We were promised being able to speak to anyone in the world. And we're doing that right now. And you can't like underestimate how or, or understate how incredible those advances are. But we also got a lot of business models that don't really help us very much. They're just there to sell us ads. And then even worse, we've gotten increase in, in government surveillance, loss of liberties, a very strong government interest in narrative control. That has, I think, prevented the democratic ideal of debating different ideas coming to a conclusion. So I think that a lot of this was somewhat foreseen in the last 20 years, but it wasn't exactly clear how it would turn out. And so I would have some of the same concerns for AI. Is it truly foreseen? I, I don't remember people really cautioning against the connectivity which we'd actually have, and most definitely not cautioning against social media that was just pure sunny uplands nobody 20 years ago talked about echo chambers and social anxiety and trolling and doxing it was a case of we can talk to anybody in the world this is going to be wonderful this is going to make us our better selves yeah yeah for the most part there were people who were shouting into the night though <laughs> that i largely ignored when i was a, a grad student in 
in 2010, and I could probably look up who this person was, but I went to a talk by someone and he said, look at the rise of, of Facebook and places like this. They're all centralized applications. In 2010, Facebook was a hot new kid on the scene. He was essentially saying, well, these companies are going to control the routes of information and we should have had a server-to-server architecture where everyone has their own servers. And that's where he lost me because I was like, come on, how's everyone going to have their own servers? And that's the problem, (laughs) just for convenience, because that's how it's economically most effective. We've outsourced our information services to all of these companies, and now the individual has far less control. And there's been some attempts to take that back, but that's just the world we have right now. So do you think that we are going into an AI future with a healthy level of skepticism because of the false bill of goods that were being sold with, let's say, the pure utopia that was going to be the internet? Yeah, I wouldn't blame the technology itself. We can speculate. We could do some predictions on here on what the technology is going to enable in the future. Just what it's enabling now has been incredible, and I'm sure you've spoken about it. We can speak about it. But I also think I am not so pessimistic that like, I don't think these large language models or these giant models for whatever that these companies are building are going to be all centralized into one company the way our social media was or the way Google has centralized the organization of information. I think that these things can be built in parallel and even using ChatGPT, as I'm sure is the primary way that, that your audience has interacted with large language models up to this time, I've noticed some huge improvements over the experience that we'll get with social media or with websites or with Wikipedia. This is maybe something that's making me more optimistic because let's say Wikipedia is biased, Google's biased, all that stuff. Okay, let's say someone trains an LLM to be biased, but there's still this issue where you can question it and query it and try to like get more specifics. And so even if it displays a bias in its first answer, it makes it a lot easier to do more research. I'm very excited about that possibility. I know my answer has wandered off to what you were originally asking, <laughs> but uh, just a, a stream of consciousness there. No worries. And, and, and I absolutely did follow your stream of consciousness, but I want to just wind you back slightly. You talked about how, let's say, social media is consolidated. And for me, this is one of my biggest concerns about an AI future, that if we have tech companies who are creating this thing as they are and perfecting it, it's in effect an arms race. And we're going to have a monopoly very quickly with, let's say, one, two, maybe three companies who their software, their AI is fundamentally powering just about every tech-driven device on the planet. And that cannot be good. But I cannot see how we can mitigate around natural consolidation within this field. Yeah, it's going to be tough. The only thing that I can think that might be helpful is that if you take a group of Google researchers or a group of researchers at OpenAI at Microsoft who have built these things, they have an idea of how to restart these models somewhere else. They'll need a huge amount of data and they'll need a huge amount of compute power. But I don't think that these companies have an IP or structural or network effect as strong as maybe social media, although I could be wrong about that. Maybe they do. But yeah, you're right. It's going to be in the hands of several companies and several governments. If you asked me about this maybe 10 years ago, I'd say, that's great. We have three or four companies 
who are all competing. If we don't like one, we can go to the other. But <laughs> as we've noticed on the internet now, like they often all go in the same direction, which has affected my mental model of this a little bit. There are 194, 95 countries in the world. You're going to end up with a situation whereby, let's say, three, four, five companies will be more powerful than sovereign governments. If you have companies who their rate of development of this software is going to be outstrip anything a government can do and or will have the ability to bully, coerce, influence policy making on governments that say we don't want this or whatever, right? But by sheer weight of numbers, because three quarters of the planet are using this and productivity levels will go exponentially, this is companies surely replacing civilian government. Isn't that already true with social media? Didn't they all kick Trump off their platform in 2021 and then let him back on? And still today, they decide which international politicians are allowed on their platform and not allowed I, You know platform. what? But I'm going to say no, because the EU seems to be showing the US how to have a regulation against tech companies, whether it's GDPR, etc. The EU is fining various tech companies. Meta didn't release threads within the EU because it weren't compliant with various legislation. So I think within the United States, you're completely and utterly right that the US government has been pretty supine towards tech. And I think there are, there's multiple reasons for that. And one of them is the, the gerontocracy, which is American politics, where you have a whole load of people who are 60 plus who just don't fundamentally understand tech because they don't use it. But the EU has proven that actually you can show a bit of a backbone and don't, don't just roll over to tech. And then very obviously there are wall gardens. So China has its own kind of like tech system, etc. But it's interesting. I'm sat here at the moment speaking from the UK. And I would go so far as to say, if you're a tech company, you don't care what the UK government says. You care what the EU says because it's 350 million people. You care what the US government says. That's 340 million people. But 57 million people, you can ignore the sixth biggest economy in the world. And I just think that if we look at this logically, we're going to end up with a situation whereby companies that write AI will maybe throw a SOP to a government in terms of that they'll have some level of access and they'll be able to amend and create their own bits of software off the back of it. But ultimately, there's always going to be five, six, 30, 40 governments who will always just say yes to whatever by sheer weight of numbers. Sovereign government is weakened because of it. But I could be incredibly dystopian about this. No, I don't think you're being dystopian at all. I think it's a real possibility. I think you're right. A, a lot of decisions can be consolidated into world governments. That could be a, a very bad thing. Unless there's some longstanding policy akin to the Bill of Rights or akin to something that sort of ensures that everyone gets their say, multiple points of view are represented. This technology is not used to surveil upon people in ways where innocent activity can be criminalized. I think in that case, it's <laughs> some relying on world governments might not be a, a great 
idea, but sometimes when multiple parties come together, they have to agree on something that is reasonable for everyone. And so maybe there's a possibility that we'll get something okay there. But again, I don't know. I'm not part of the political process in, in that. Maybe we could go to something a little more specific so I could try to relax my mind and try to, try to think of something. <laughs> let, 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 let's navigate you there gently, but just to um, finish up on this point, because I have gone straight for the jugular. And I've gone straight to the dystopia, which you said was maybe 30% of your feeling about AI. When it comes to mass surveillance, which you just hinted at, or predictive policing, if I am Xi Jinping or the head of some totalitarian regime, this all sounds like honey from heaven. These are some of the most obvious ways that AI will be able to intrude on our privacy even more than the internet has but let's stop being dystopian just for a moment tell us aspects of ai's future which you think is for the good of humanity right so the way i've been thinking about this is the way we've been sold the internet and social media and the parts of it that came true that we're actually taking part in right now which is hey you guys this is me as a child or as a college student. You guys are growing up in a world where anything that you want to say, anything that you want to create, anything that you want to produce, you can put it out there. The gatekeepers are down and you could share it with anyone in the world and you could share it with everyone in the world. And you're going to have free courses and a free video and a free communication with your friends all over the world. Isn't this amazing? And what world are you going to create with that? What are you going to do with that? And then everybody has to decide for themselves what they're going to do with that. You and I started podcasts <laughs> as, as one thing, which has been a lot of fun. So I don't have to you know, go into a radio studio and start working my way up uh, <laughs> in local radio or anything like that. Some um, people started blogs in the 2000s. Uh, but let's talk about what we could tell people today, which is not only is this true. Max, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Can I be a little bit dystopian again? Sure, but I didn't get to the point. But okay, yes. well, you get to your point. You're the guest on the show. You get to the oh. point. Okay, so my point is today the thing to think about is now with generative AI in particular, any world, it's not just anything that you can write or produce or, or say, any world that you could dream up in your mind that you could you can write about or whatever, any kind of inkling of an idea you could have the machines generate entire new worlds for you, whether it's through text or image or video. And so this is an incredible power that we're all going to have. We've all started to have it. And in the next 10 years, we're going to have it in full force, which is the ability to conjure up our own universe, essentially, in, in, in terms of the information. Like you could generate a novel tailored just to you. Like all you have to do is say, this is what I want the novel to be about or you could generate images from a new world that you think, uh, a different planet that you think up that people are living on. Okay, what I want people to think about is what are they going to do with that power? So that's all I want to say. That to me sounds dystopian. Again, one of the fallouts that we've had from social media around the rise of anybody creating content is not only a glut of content and a glut of a lot of content which is meh or mid at best, but also that we can all retreat into our own spheres, our own areas, our own echo chambers. And these aren't necessarily just political 
and we aren't necessarily communing over common space. And I think everyone's creating their own universes, quite literally, creatively. One of the common bonds of community is going to go. It's the difference between watching a movie in a communal space and watching everybody and hearing everybody gasp at the same time and or laugh at the same time and everybody watching a version of the same thing which is subtly different at home maybe just with their loved one or maybe even just by themselves yes i could see that but it if i can put on the flip side i think that kind of retreating off into one's own universe of ideas is part of the act of personal creation that is needed for an artist or needed for an entrepreneur or anyone like that to come up with the ideas that they could then share with the rest of the world. So I think even if it starts as a one-player game, I don't think it has to stay there. And I don't think that humans are going to naturally want to keep it there. Then again, you could definitely have this problem. I'm, I'm reminded of one of those old Star Trek episodes where one of the characters became like addicted to the holodeck and was just generating his own kind of worlds and would just just stay there and retreat from work and everything. That's a problem, but I don't think that discounts the promise of this technology. Let's move on. I'm being incredibly dark today. I do think that a lot of our apprehensions or misapprehensions around the technology are false. Yes, it's going to disrupt industries. Absolutely. But since the start of the Industrial Revolution has been various waves of iteration of the Industrial Revolution, which has put people out of work. One point, barriers who made uh, shoes for horses. That's an industry which was essential to a 19th century economy, but it's gone because of the internal combustion engine. So why this revolution is so obviously different is because it's going to disrupt white-collar jobs in a way that no other iteration of the Industrial Revolution for the last 250 years ever has. It's always been blue-collar jobs. It's always been the person who worked with their hands, who didn't employ their brain. This is where this is going to be different. And one of the ways which it potentially is going to upend things is drug discovery, isn't it? That AI-powered algorithms can accelerate drug discovery by looking at vast data nets. Are there any other industries, maybe the pharmaceutical one, where we're going to be able to see innovation at breakneck speed? I want to say all of them. I have a friend who works in kind of drug discovery, and he is extremely optimistic about this stuff, how we're going to find drugs that solve every single problem. Let's go back to your question. What was it? What other industries are going to be disrupted? Yeah, maybe try and think of an industry which isn't top of people's mind. Everybody thinks truck drivers, you know, AI cars and whatever, things like that. Maybe give us an industry which people aren't necessarily thinking about. Another one which people say all the time, lawyers. You never get rid of the lawyers. You know what? I don't know. <laughs> Although... <laughs> but maybe paralegals, legal assistants, maybe they're the chopping block. I've written three letters and got positive outcomes for minor legal matters, all generated from AI. People took me very seriously, but this is yeah. your moment to shine. You tell me, Max. I, I, my first thought is, and I'll try to come up with some specific examples for you, is that these jobs don't necessarily go away 
like lawyers don't go away, but it's just like now you could do a lot of things self-serve. You could you could talk to a virtual lawyer. You could talk to a virtual a therapist, a virtual life coach. Honestly, I've got onto ChatGPT to get recommendations of okay, I've got to I've got to send this email. I've got to make some decision, and I, I don't ask it, hey, what decision should I make? But I ask it, hey, what are five possible decisions that I could make in this case, and what are their pros and cons? And it's very good at laying that stuff out. So I think any type of like advisory type role, you're going to have a mixture of human actors and machine actors. Because ultimately, you need to have someone with actual experience and not just statistical knowledge. There's a whole debate. Is there any difference between the statistical knowledge that, that an AI has and the real world experience that a human has? But I think there is because a human has experienced the real world. A human knows what it's like to be human. And so I think everything's going to be a hybrid of both. I don't know who's going to be replaced entirely. So I'm trying to think of one example is my own field, which is software engineering. Certainly, I think there are going to be software engineers in 10 years. There may be more, there may be less, but we're going to be working very differently. Like I've been installing all sorts of IDE extensions and things like that that just tell me what code to write as I'm writing it. I feel like I feel like my experience in the field helps me figure out whether it's right or not or figure out what to query it, but it, it feels, okay, something that used to take me a week with a lot of frustration, I'm doing a lot faster and I'm getting a lot less frustrated having to look through like pages and pages of like specifications and APIs and it's just, oh, my tools are now just telling me how to do it right off the bat. So it's very exciting as someone who is working as a, a software engineer, it's a lot more pleasant to work, but then it's okay. We've just automated ourselves out of lots and lots of jobs. So that might be one example. Any other examples I can think? I, I don't know. You're a software engineer. I'm not. The only thing I can write is the very most basic HTML code. Yeah. Right? You know, I, I, I can tell you what the numbers are for black. And now you can ask. Now you can ask a large language model to write you some HTML, and you could say, "Hey, what's something that I don't know how to do with this HTML that I can add to it?" And you could just start building your skills right there. So it's a, it makes the learning curve a lot less steep. On that, one of the predictions for the future is that we're going to have more female software engineers because ultimately this is about communicating as opposed to a building in the way that we have done for the last, I don't know, let's say 50, 60 years. And if we go back to the early days of computing, People were called computers and invariably they were actually women. Do you see a future whereby we have less tech bros in the world of building tech? That's an interesting question that I haven't been asked before. So I'm trying to get a frame of reference here where when I'm in data science a lot and so I'm, I've done data science, talking to data scientists, I've noticed that in data science, the gender balance is much more even. There are more women who go into data science than into just pure software engineering. And I don't quite know why that is. And maybe that's not true. Maybe that's just my particular experience. But if you want to say this is sometimes a dangerous topic to wade into, but if you want to say it, it's related to kind of the communication, the style of communication that is is required for that role, maybe that's part of the reason. So I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting idea. That, that's all I have to add. Now's the time if you're in the audience, if, if you want to come up, raise your hand. And you can come up and ask Max a question about the future of AI. 
And whilst you're there in the audience, if you wouldn't mind giving this room a share, that would be uh, most excellent. And let's get a few more people in the next uh, 20 minutes before we uh, close the room up. And if you're down right down at the bottom, if you are marked in a section called Others in the Room, why don't you uh, click on the house, which is called Mid-Atlantic, and you then will be uh, promoted up and you'll become one of the members of the house. We do at least one room a week. Generally, it's around politics, US or UK politics, but we do venture into other realms as well, which this is most definitely one. So we have with us Max Sklar. He is a technologist of of some repute, worked for Foursquare. You name it, this man knows of what he speaks. And he's been trying to talk me down from a dystopian ledge which is where I think potentially where we are heading and I use AI extensively but I just cannot see how we're not going to have major ethical and political ramifications because of this software as great as it is in terms of what I do. Just so you know you're you're not the most pessimistic person I've talked to. There are people who think that this is like the end of the world and we're going to see like fire and brimstone type stuff in a few years hey at least you're not that negative you know what max i'm actually holding (laughs) and and these are wonderful tools but we need government regulation i am a died in the wall democratic socialist i believe in government i believe that we need to temper the market and my god do do we need government regulation and oversight on this industry which is going to upend everything Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, in no time at all. Aaron, welcome on stage. Sir. What is your question? What's your point? Hey, Rafael, thank you. Hi, Max. Good to meet you there. For me, one of the greatest concerns with AI is the cost of computing there. I was curious what sort of trends you were seeing on the horizon that, or, or rather, where the innovation would go with regard to speed up and, and increases in efficiency for different elements of AI. That's a good question. So I have to say, I'm not going to base my opinion here is not based on sifting through lots and lots of data on like the cost structure 
of Google or the cost structure of MidJourney or ChatGPT or anything like that. Obviously, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of compute cycles to train these large models. I just will say that like one of the kind of research interests of mine is to try to figure out, I've called this big algorithm small data. It's to figure out whether these models are actually, they're basically like shotgunning it. They're basically taking all the data in the world and they are taking as many parameters as they possibly can, as large as they possibly can. And they're training these neural nets, essentially, which the, the architecture has changed quite a bit. The big breakthrough everyone's been talking about the last few years is like the transformer, which, which is used in some of these large language models. But is there a way to compress this information and to restructure the way that these algorithms work so that they are constantly reusing information and then they're actually trying to come up with specific algorithms and specific semantic understanding of what they're talking about within their models within their large model rather than just being like a whole bunch of a whole bunch of neurons and transformers that all look the same and could we have a an exponential speed up if we do that i suspect we can i suspect if we do that then parts of these models would be you know, inter- more interpretable than they are now but it's a huge problem so that's the only thing that comes to mind. I don't know if there's a follow-up for that or, or if I answer your question. Oh, thank you. I always appreciate the intake. Thank you. Mark, long time, no see, sir. Uh, what's your question for Max? Yeah, good to see you again, Murrayfield. It's been a long while. Um, Max, what do you think about all these AI companions? Men and women are using companion bots to replace real social connections. Do you think that's a destruction to society or do you think it's a useful thing, like therapeutic? I'd be very concerned if it's a, uh, if it's a threat to society because I've worked on one <laughs> back in 2016 and then again a few years ago when I was at Foursquare. We built an experimental app called MarsBot where it would come alive, it would text you at the right time. Just to reiterate, the one that I worked on was like the idea that we had, the vision that we had was it was a character that lives in your pocket that comes alive when it has a good recommendation for you. If you walk into a cafe, it could tell you exactly what to order. That was always fun. And the idea was that it was like a companion that would always be there to look after your interests in the way that it knows how to do. Now, that's that's like a wonderful idea. But the question is, is that the idea that that wins in the marketplace? And so that I think we're going to have to fight for that. I think we're going to have to figure out, okay, what agents are healthy for us? What agents are not healthy for us? such a good idea with that collectively and maybe we've got to do a better better job this time but i really do think that there are so many positives to these things whether it's fun bots that you could talk to daily or in some cases in some cases some of these solve serious problems serious counseling issues if someone's having very negative thoughts i think some of this technology can be used where they can type into it and they can be helped rather quickly before before a human can help them so i think that there's tremendous promise for this technology. The question is, what happens when people get a hold of it and try to use it in ways that are maybe in their interests, but not in our interests as consumers? Think about all the games that they get us addicted to on our phones. Some of them are harmless. Some of them are quite addictive. What kind of characters are we going to create? And I would have to say, like, I, I share your concern there. Someone might, companies and individuals and even intelligence agencies might create agents that kind of use our humanity to cause us to to reveal things that subvert our interests. It's 
yeah, it's a big concern. Fertility rates are plunging in all advanced economies throughout the world. The fertility rate in Japan is something like 1.1 in Korea. It's round about the same. But if you have an advanced economy, fertility rates are collapsing. Social connection and empathy is collapsing. Whilst it's undoubted that in terms of people who are feeling um, excluded, lonely, uh, have some level of depression, this is most definitely going to be a boon. Don't know which ethical standards body is going to write that software and are we going to link it up throughout the world. So we have uh, relative standards of mental care. So it's some, somewhat standardised. But in terms of, again, us retreating into our shells and quite literally, no pun intended, self-pleasuring with AI that only panders to us, this for me is is incredibly dark. And again, I just say this is the reason why we, we do need some level of real societal oversight with this because just social media... Uh, the personalization of content and the rigors of late stage capitalism means that fertility rates are going down and we are seeing more instances of distrust, trolling, etc. Because we don't have those bonds, we don't have those common experiences with each other. But I'm just repeating myself. Now, I'm going to shush. How are we going to... What? Uh, what, uh, what just like just think in, just keep them in. Ben, you're going to go next. Then Victor, after Max has told me that Royfield, I'm I'm just being too dark. The world is sunny. So Max, please answer. Then Ben, then Victor, and then um, whoever has got their hand up in the audience will pull you up, and then we'll bring this room to a close. No, yeah, just what you said reminds me of problems that we faced before. It's why do we like chocolate cake so much. It's not because evolution, chocolate cake exists in the wild and evolution has taught us this is really helpful for your survival. It's more we've developed a sense for some of the ingredients and sugar and, and calories that we as humans needed to survive in the wild. And then we overdosed on that with, oh, we're just overstimulating your kind of human heuristics of what's good to eat. And this could cause obesity it could cause people to cause addictions it could cause people to do things that that they shouldn't be doing and yes i agree with you ai is, could lead to a lot of that and i'm sorry i don't have the answers on how to deal with it but i think we should be thinking about it ben i hope to see you sir max there's an issue with the accuracy problems with chat gpt and the most recent large language models largely because the algorithm underneath those transformer etc it's basically putting a layman's term a sort of copying what humans would speak and thinking that's the pattern humans would speak and then they'll string these words together by spitting out an answer when you put in a prompt. With that in mind, do you think technically there's a way to improve the algorithm so that the future AI or large language model will not necessarily just be a parrot mimicking what it thought humans would speak or even think or express themselves based on the large amounts of data that humans have already produced. And we know that garbage in, garbage out. Some of the uh, misinformation uh, could be even a, a very large percentage of the data that's out there on a particular subject matter. So that the current LLMs would really produce an answer that's 
I would believe also based on misinformation. So, do you think, with your background in computer science, there are some ways that we can tweak or improve the algorithm so that we'll take into more parameters or different parameters or vectors so that we would get a better accuracy to the extent not perfect, but we would get human users benefit from the relatively accurate information because where people are not just using ChatGPT for marketing materials or love poems. They are thinking about introducing that to medical application and legal applications. To me, I think there's, from a technical perspective, perspective, a better improvement on that. I wonder what your thoughts on that. Thanks. That was a great question. There's a lot here. I thought you were going to go in a, in a little bit of different direction with that question, but maybe we could cover a whole bunch of things. So the first one is, how can we look at? Is there a technical solution to dealing with the inaccuracies that are produced by some of these large language models? I think that you're never going to get rid of it entirely, but I think that ultimately we're going to want to move to a different architecture. Whereas right now it's all kind of statistical language generation, like you said. Most of us who study computer science, whether we're in an undergrad or, or in grad school, will build a simple language model, something called a bigram model, where essentially after every word we'll just pick the word that's most likely to come after it, and it generates. And we'll pick that randomly based on the distribution and we'll generate sentences and paragraphs and all that. It looks like gobbledygook, but some of it looks like reasonable, but it's all made up. And you think of these large language models as just the logical conclusion of that. I think uh, what these large language models have to do is they have to be able to hook into actual databases like semantic databases where you have learned what the specific human concepts are what their relationship to each other is, who's marking them as true, who's marking them as not true. Maybe this database is not going to be completely accurate, but at least it has some kind of sense of provenance and the sense of, okay, I got this piece of information from here and that piece of information from there. And then I have this fact and these people have told me it's true. This guy objects. I don't know why, but so something like that. So I'm imagining like a global semantic database. And then the LLM can figure out, you could have several ways of hooking into it. You could have a system too, where you can look at what the LLM produces and you could say, okay, let's turn these statements into facts and then let's check these facts against the database, almost fact check to the, the output. Or you could somehow build it into it to have it do it in real time. Another possibility, another kind of thought experiment for how this technology could be improved is related to something that I talk about on the local maximum a lot, which is Bayesian inference, where sometimes we're giving you the most likely answer, but really what we have is a probability distribution around the answers. And so if I tell you that the answer is six, I might be 99.99% sure that the answer is six, or I might be very uncertain that the answer is six. It just happens to be the most probable answer over many possible answers that are almost as likely. And so in that case, if we could have some sense of when it's saying things like whether what it's saying is extreme, we don't have a sense like when ChatGPT picks a word or when it picks a, a phrase of, okay, was this the only phrase that could go after this? Was it so certain of it or was it not certain and it could have picked many different things and it picked that? Because I suspect in the latter case, that's where you get a lot of the hallucinations. Thank you for that excellent question. And Ben, it just goes to underline the reason why. I do uh, Mid-Atlantic 
on Clubhouse because people always ask better questions than me. Victor, you're up next. Hi, Rafael. Hi, Max. Thanks for the interesting conversation. My perception is that a lot of these sort of turning point technologies really have changed our bodies and our minds, whether it's whether it's the car or industrialized processed food production where, where we're moving less and we're eating less healthily and we're more, more overweight, or whether it's social media where now we don't have to we don't have to remember so many things. We can just offload it onto our phones or and also our perceptions of each other and the way we relate is so changed and so skewed. I feel like with where we're at now, we haven't really found a way to to address the problems with those things. And my concern is that with AI permeating our lives more and becoming more and more advanced, it'll be the same situation where we really suffer the consequences, both intellectually and probably in other ways bodily. And I'm wondering if there are any credible organizations that are working on strategies to offset the potential downsides to the increasing impacts of artificial intelligence, and also whether there is reason to believe that, oh, we won't succumb in the same ways that we have suffered with the automobile in terms of not exercising as much or not having to read or remember as much due to large smartphones and social media. All right. Victor, thank you so much for your question. First of all, in terms of organizations were trying to work on this problem, trying to make this better, I don't know one, but if someone in the audience knows of one, I would love to, I w- I would love to be informed of it because there should be organizations who are trying to figure these things out. I think... Is there any reason to be optimistic? I think I, my view is a healthy, okay, every time we go through this cycle, perhaps we can learn from what we did in the previous cycles. On the other hand, we're always going to run into new problems and we're always going to run into the same old, old problems that, that, that humans create. I don't know. It could go either way. I don't want to be too optimistic here. I think that one group of people that should really be thinking about the problem of AI alignment is not philosophers or even technologists, but entrepreneurs and business leaders, people who are creating the companies of tomorrow and who are setting the uh, and investors who are like setting the business model because the business model is going to dictate in a lot of ways what the outcome is. And we've got to ask, okay, how can you generate a business model that we're actually incentivized to create systems that are in the interests of people. And if that's not the best business model, what kind of policy is in place or or how does policy need to change to ensure that the the right business models are there? So that's just one thought. I, I hope that answers your question. It's interesting to think of that from the perspective of learning from past mistakes, because I, I really wish I wouldn't have to be dour, but I look at it from the perspective that we're coming into the AI age still suffering from the consequences of these issues that we haven't solved yet. We're coming into the AI age more out of shape, you know, less mentally healthy, more stressed out, more disconnected. And I feel like that doesn't put us in the best position to um, approach uh, these new technologies with reason and restraint. Yeah, that point well taken. I wonder if AI technology can be somehow used to ameliorate some of these problems. If you want to look at the other way, you might be might not be too optimistic that it could happen. In the case of personal assistance, if you truly had a personal assistant in your life that was looking out for your interests and maybe looking out for helping you make decisions like, you know, who to associate with, what job to take, uh, when to get up in the morning, what to eat, maybe it could help with things like fitness and health and, and, and mental health and all that. I don't know, but I'm hoping that there are more people thinking about 
how what they're building can solve the the problems of the past. And that's why I'm happy with the fact that we're having this discussion today. Thanks for that excellent question. Here is my good friend, you're up next. Thank you, Royfield. And hi, Max. Thank you so much for this interesting uh, conversation. I want to get a little bit technical with you and ask you something about the image recognition, which I think is a key function of AI. If you can elaborate on this a little bit and why is it so crucial? Another little question is regarding the development and, and the contribution of AI to healthcare. What are your key points moving forward? I would love to hear that. Thanks, Cyrus. So image recognition has been a part of AI for, for many years. It's a really interesting problem. Uh, it was a really hard problem that I think the early pioneers of computer science thought that they would be able to solve rather quickly. And then it turned out to be very difficult because images are just matrices of numbers, it turns out. Then how do you interpret that into what it is? And if you write a number down or a letter down, if you write the letter A, what pixels turn on for the letter A? It could be so many. You could write it. There's so many different ways to write it. At some point, a bunch of technologies were created to, to do image recognition. My former professor at NYU, when I went there, Jan LeCun, built a lot of that stuff, convolutional neural nets. And even in 2010, when I was in Professor LeCun's class, he would take out a camera in the middle of class and he would point at things, like he would point it at a pen and then the screen above would say pen. He would point it at desk and the screen above would say, it would literally just label whatever he was pointing the camera at, which even today is pretty cool. We've seen stuff like this more and more, but it would still be cool to have that sort of heads up display of what you're looking at. So I think that image recognition, let, let's take it to, because your question was, well, what, what's the importance of it today? It's images is just how we interpret the world and the ability to understand our photos and our videos and just understand what, what's going on. That's an important part of our human experience. Machines will never completely understand our human experiences, but without understanding, without understanding images, or at least the language of images, or at least the language of space and 3D space and, and the language of objects, I, I don't think it's going to, I don't think it would be able to truly understand the world. Now, there's of course a big privacy and, and sleuthing concern with images because like you could take an image and I think a machine should be able to, at some point, figure out, okay, when and where was this taken, even if it's not labeled, and who exactly is in it, of course, could do that. Having all of our video and images tagged, it's really helpful for me to organize old family photos and family videos and stuff, but I don't know what it means for society having everything be tagged by machines. Thank you for that. And then healthcare... I've been less involved in healthcare, but I think that I think you'll see a lot of the same trends play out there. I'm really excited about the merger of doctor and machine when it comes to diagnosis. And to be honest, also when it comes to like self doing your own research, which I know doctors tell you not to do, but it's just sometimes you can't always see a doctor. Sometimes you see a doctor and they're not really, you feel like they didn't really listen to you and you want to have something where you could go back and forth with for hours talking about all the possibilities. I think that that part of AI I'm very excited about, but also like just the diagnosis from images in general. I had a very serious eye medical issue uh, a few years ago, and I feel the images that they were taking for me were being looked at by humans. And they didn't catch what it was for a year. And I almost feel like, okay, maybe if some AI were looking at these images, they would probably have 
told the doctors what it was way earlier. So I really hope that that is amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eris, and thank you, Max. Les, you have the honor of asking the last question. So maybe we need to improve the consumers and teach critical thinking in schools from kindergarten on up. Amen to that. <laughs> I, the uh, more critical thinking the world has, the better. That's what I think. A perfect end. Max, do you have a parting thought you want to give us? I can't believe how dark I've actually got around this subject. And as I said, the irony is that I use AI all day, every day. And I'm also acutely aware that I use it in lots of passive ways. A Spotify algorithm, which tells me songs which I'm going to like, is 95% correct. It knows the songs which I've already said that I liked and listened to and it says oh why don't you listen to this it's always spot on I am bowled over with the quality of photographs which I'm taking on my latest iPhone and that is because it knows what I'm pointing the camera at it is subtly doing things in the background to Eris's point that is image recognition working seamlessly with you pointing at the camera and I could just go on and on. And it helps me, somebody who's a functioning dyslexic, craft better emails, emails which are grammatically correct. Just last week on the show, somebody was saying, I don't use AI, and then started talking about how wonderful Grammarly was. I went, that's AI. You know, people think that chat GPT is the only thing which is AI, but it's embedded in so many different things. But anyway, I'm only telling you what you know. Take me from my dark place, Max. Give us your closing words and thoughts on the issue. I had listened to a little bit of your program before going on, but I wasn't sure where this conversation was going to go today or what it was like going to be like to interact with your audience. But I see that it's not that you're just an internal pessimist. It's in, your audience play out, plays out with this. I feel like I've just talked to people who are looking around at the world and are recognizing the different problems in the world and we're trying to talk through how we can solve them and how we could do better for next time. And I think this was a very valuable conversation for that. And I learned a lot from you and your audience just by having this conversation and just by forcing me to speak. So thank you very much. Max, why don't you tell people where they can catch up with you? <laughs> Someone says it's not a real audience. It's all AI. <laughs> <laughs> well, Max, why don't you tell us uh, where people can catch up with your podcast, where people can catch you on social media, etc.? Yeah, so the podcast is called The Local Maximum. I do a show every week, whether I want to or not. Sometimes I'm really excited to do it. Sometimes I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to get a show out this week? But but I've gotten into the practice of doing it. Sometimes it's a solo show. I'll talk about a topic in philosophy and math. Sometimes I have my co-host Aaron on and we talk about current events. We do probability distribution of the week. My goal is to make it a little bit more difficult than an average podcast would get to. So if you're a smart person and you're curious, my goal is that you like understand 50% of it and then the other 50% is kind of a reach. Um, and then I have some interesting guests on. You know, every time I read a book, I ask the author if they want to be on. And I had authors in engineering, data science, even some fun ones. I'm thinking particularly of last year when I have A.J. Jacobs, who wrote a whole book about puzzles to come on the show. And we actually ended up getting to a very deep philosophical discussion about how do we know what we know is true and the sleeping beauty paradox what is probability exactly what are numbers how can we trust what statisticians are saying all those issues and so we basically have an ongoing discussion 
week to week. And uh, it's been very rewarding. And yeah, I hope you'll check it out. Social media, you can just find my name, Max Glar, at, I was going to say at Twitter, but I guess it's X now. That's really the main place that you could find me these days. But mostly it's the podcast. That's what I love doing. And the website, localmaxradio.com. Sorry. Max Glar, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and at least slightly getting me to back away from the ledge and thinking that humanity is going to hell in a handbasket because of AI. The most obviously are going to be upsides and positives to this revolutionary technology. And you've given us an insight into some of them. And also because of the excellent questions of Ben, Iris, etc., given us an idea of actually how this software works. So thank you for that. Just before we go, if you are listening to the podcast, and I say this every episode, most episodes, a goodly just under 10,000 of you are now downloading each episode. Why don't you uh, download the Clubhouse app? What it means is that you can be in the audience live for one of the recordings of this podcast. And it also means that you can come up and uh, ask a question. This isn't just that your regular podcast is somewhat interactive because we are on the Clubhouse app. So download Clubhouse. Join us uh, for a recording of Mid-Atlantic. Quite simply, when you get onto Clubhouse, type in Mid-Atlantic and follow the house and you can be on the podcast we always end by saying left of center politics is right thinking politics and what we are here to do is to broaden knowledge but also to try and put a knife a dagger into neoliberalism because all it does is exacerbate wealth and actually now knowledge inequality take care look after yourselves i've been royfield brown with max glar bye-bye